up here, we are starting a new series on the book of Malachi. And I know when I say that, some of you are really jazzed up. You're excited about that. Um, it's not the most sexy of series, uh, as if you're not familiar with the book. There might be others of you who are really pumped. You're like, yeah, we're getting to tithing and divorce. Can't wait. Anybody excited about that? Don't worry. That's not this week. They're going to be coming later. So there's three reasons that we're going to be in the book of Malachi for the next seven weeks. And here's an inside look at how I pick what we're going to, just kind of some inside baseball on this. Uh, so some pastors really like to teach topically. And they say, you know, if we cover various topics, we can bring things together that might not be found clearly in one book of the Bible altogether. And so we can make a nice holistic sermon series on one topic. Other pastors say well, you just got to preach through books of the Bible. That way you never skip the uncomfortable passages like divorce and tithing. Um, so by going book by book, you have to preach through all those verses. I think they both have merit. They're both really helpful approaches. And I've done a lot of topical messages lately. And so I said, I need to get into a book of the Bible. So why Malachi? Because it's the last book of the Old Testament. And so it's the perfect pre-Christmas series because right after the last phrases that you hear in the book of Malachi, no utterance from God is spoken until you get to all the Christmas stories that come up. So it's going to be, trust me, it's going to be exciting. Um, and finally, as I read through Malachi multiple times, it's an incredibly applicable book for us today. And you're just going to have to trust me on that. But it covers all sorts of topics that we might not otherwise discuss, including where we're going to be today. So knowing that not many of you have a great working knowledge of where Malachi fits in the whole storyline of the Old Testament, I want to help you understand uh, what God was doing in Israel at the time that he gave this message to Malachi. And to do that, though, and for today's message, unfortunately, we have to go way back to the beginning. I'm going to run through the history of the Old Testament in under three minutes. So in Genesis chapter 12, God shows up to a guy named Abraham, and he tells him, Abraham, I am going to make you the father of a great nation. You are going to have a tons and tons of descendants. For one reason or another, we're never really told, God chooses to start with one person. And then what we see is at 100 years old and his wife 90 years old, they miraculously, Abraham and Sarah, have a child and his name is Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah, and Rebekah has twins. And while she's pregnant with these twins, there's a lot going on inside of her, and so she goes to inquire of the Lord, what is going on? So in Genesis chapter 25, verses 22 and 23, it says, the babies jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? She went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. She gives birth. The first child who comes out is covered in red hair, and so he's named Esau, which sounds like the Hebrew word for red. The second child comes out. His name is Jacob. And so Esau was supposed to be Dad's heir to everything. But one of the stories we read is he carelessly trades his birthright 
for a bowl of stew that Jacob makes for his brother Esau. It sounds ridiculous. Then we've got the other story that many of you may be familiar with where when dad is ready to give the blessing to both the boys, Jacob tricks his father, pretends that he's Esau, covers his arms with hair, and receives the blessing that was meant to go to the firstborn onto Jacob, the younger brother. These are the stories we have of Jacob and Esau. But then what we see is the rest of, this all happens by chapter 26 of the first half, essentially, of the first book of the Bible. From there, what we see is Jacob ends up having 12 children who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And God renames Jacob and calls him Israel. So today, when we talk about the the Israelites and the people of Israel, even in the Middle East today, they are the descendants of Jacob from our Bible, whom God renamed Israel with the 12 tribes, his 12 sons. And God made them a people. They multiplied. They ended up in Egypt. He led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. He gave them the law. He promised them the promised land. For 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness because of their sin. And then he brought them into the promised land. Moses led them out of Egypt and through the wilderness. Joshua led them into the promised land where they defeated all sorts of other nations and cities and they moved into the promised land. King David became the king who subdued most of the enemies and started to give them stability. He was like the high point of Israel as a nation. Following King David, however, were a series of good kings and bad kings. Those who sinned ultimately divided the kingdom in two. The northern half, after many years, the northern ten tribes, they're called, where the Assyrians came in and ransacked the northern ten tribes and took the people off into what is now modern-day Syria. That's the rough region of the world. A hundred years later or so, the southern tribes were a little better, a little more God-fearing, but they had their own issues. Babylon, which is now modern-day Iraq, they came in. They led the people out of Jerusalem and back to Babylon. For 70 years, they lived in Babylon, and eventually they were able to return to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the city wall in the book of Nehemiah. They rebuilt the temple in the book of Ezra. A hundred years later, though, they're still kind of living in squalor. Life isn't very good. They feel like second-class citizens. The the goodness of God has not really returned. Like they remember from stories of Mimah and Peepaw how great the temple was. And what they see is like, God, what we're experiencing is not the same. And that is where the book of Malachi, to that people, is where we get this letter. So Malachi, like I said, you should turn there. It's the last book of the Old Testament. So if you find the Gospels, just go back a couple pages. He's the last prophet who speaks on God's behalf to the Israelite people. And so with all of that now as the backdrop, we've got God's chosen people, the Israelites, but they have lost all their zeal for God and they're basically just going through their religious motions, feeling like God has abandoned them. And that's the people God now writes this letter to. So Malachi chapter 1. Verse 1, a prophecy or an oracle, some of your Bibles might say, the word of the Lord to Israel 
through Malachi. So basically, this is God's message to His people, the Israelites who have returned back to Jerusalem and the region around it through this prophet who's written this letter for them. And what's interesting about Malachi is nearly the entire book is written from God's perspective, like God's words to them with almost no other narrative or interruption. That's where we're going to pick up verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? And so what we see here is the first of what's going to become several disputes that God sets up in this book and which are going to be the core of these messages. But this first dispute strikes at the core of what so many people doubt today. God is telling his covenant people, I love you. And they're saying, I don't see it. How have you loved us, God? They wonder if he cares about them anymore. They look at their circumstances, their struggles, the trials of all the nations around them, that nothing has come back to as good as it used to be. They no longer have the success they once have. And they doubt God's love. And here's my question that makes this so applicable to us today. Do you ever wonder if God loves you? Do you ever struggle looking at the circumstances of your life and say, Ryan, yeah, I come to church. We sing songs about God's love. I hear about how God is so loving and so good, but I look at the evidence around me and I wonder if God cares about my life at all. I wonder if he sees me I wonder if he knows me or I wonder if he just forgot about me. I know that there are people who wrestle with these very things. Their lives are just surrounded by such darkness and struggle and chaos that for me to stand up here and say, God loves you, they say, how has God loved me? That's a question that has rung true now for 2,400 years from the time they asked it till today. And so we're two verses in, and we already see how applicable this passage is and how it just rings true for so many people wondering, God, how have you loved me? And some people get mad at God over this issue. They can't reconcile these two things together. And so as a result, they choose to walk away from God. And they say, God, I don't want anything to do with you. So you feel the tension building in this message a little bit. Let's look at how does God respond, you know, to their feelings of abandonment. God, how have you loved us? We continue verse 2 through through verse 5. God's response. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Raise your hand if you saw that coming as God's response. 
Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. There's so much to unpack here. But you also see why we went so far back into Israel's history to see this Jacob-Esau tension that arises right here in this first passage. So Jacob, like I've said, he's the ancestor of the Israelites. God renamed him Israel. And Esau is the ancestor of the Edomites. And God foretold that the younger or the older would serve the younger, that Esau and his people would serve Jacob and the Israelites. And when you read through the Old Testament, you see these two nations They battle. They struggle. At one point, as the Israelites are going through the wilderness on their way to the promised land, they send messengers and say, hey, Edom, can we go through your land? Edom says, no, can't go through. Keep going, bug. You know, we don't want anything to do with you. We see at one point, David and his commander, Joab, they actually go in and they crush the people of Edom. It says they kill over 18,000 Edomites. And they make them servants of the kingdom of Israel, just like was foretold. Eventually, the Edomites rebel against Israel, and they fight back, and they leave. And then God raises up another king, Amaziah, which is an amazing name for a king. And it says, he slaughtered another 10,000 Edomites. And then later, the Edomites attack Judah, and they carry off a bunch of people of the tribe of Judah into captivity. So clearly, Israel and Edom share a ton of animosity. In fact, we're told in Psalm 137 that the Edomites rejoiced when Jerusalem was attacked and destroyed. Ironically, it wasn't that many years later that they were attacked and destroyed themselves. Carried off to captivity exactly like happened to their ancestors going back to the Israelites. So with all that as the background of these two nations, we come across God's own words that we have to reconcile. I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. There's tension in that statement, isn't there? Like we read this and we hear it and we go, what on earth is God communicating here? What is he trying to tell us? And so first, some people look at this passage to prove that God predetermines who is going to heaven and who he hates, and he has then destined them to hell. It's almost like you could picture God with this little flower with the petals. I love them, I love them not. I love them, I love them not. Just willy-nilly, you're in, you're out, heaven, hell, heaven, hell. And this theologically, this frame of thinking is called double predestination. So if you hear somebody talking about double predestination, they tend to be hyper-Calvinists, if you know what that means. And they say, God destines, determines who is going to heaven before anybody was ever born, before the world was ever created. And he predetermined everybody who is going to be created for destruction and destined to hell. This is not a true theology, okay? It's a fringe theology. It's over there. But people get there when they look at these passages just at a very literal reading and they don't dig deeper, okay? So this concept of God creating some people for the sole purpose of just damning them to hell, what we see is it doesn't really fit with other passages in our Bibles. If we go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, Peter writes this, the Lord is... All right. I'm going to backtrack. You've all lost your train of thought. 
We've got this passage, 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The will of God is that everybody would come to repentance, right? It's very clear there. So to say that somehow the will of God is that some would be damned to hell without having any choice in the matter doesn't make sense with what God is doing. So what we see God doing is saying he wants everybody to come to repentance. However, in his infinite knowledge and the fact that God lives outside of the realm of time, uh, which is a constraint we can't even really fathom, he has predestined people according to his foreknowledge. That's what Romans 8:29 through 30 tells us. It says this, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is what, when we talk about election, that word election means that God predestined. But this passage, what it's telling us is the predestination is according to his foreknowledge of how people were going to respond. I know some of you right now are bristling at this. Um, I've struggled through this concept a lot. Here's a phrase I found really helpful. Predestination is not predetermination. Predetermination says God takes away your choice and says you're going to heaven, you're going to hell. And so essentially choice and free will are taken out of the matter. It's like this concept that God has somehow coded you to be good and choose him or to be bad and to never choose him. This concept of predestination, when you say God's not predetermining, it says he somehow sees how you are going to choose. Are you going to have faith or not have faith? He saw that before he ever made the foundation of the world. He knew that Adam was going to sin and that there is going to be sin in the world and the sacrifice of Jesus was going to be a requirement on his behalf before he ever created the world. That did not surprise him. He knew what was in front. And so when he says he predestined, he's saying he knows the beginning from the end who is going to be a follower of Jesus. But that in no way takes away our free will. And so what this also tells us is that he knew that Esau was going to be his enemy and the people of the Edomites were going to be the enemies of God. He graciously chose Jacob to love and to faithfully be committed to, so that even when the Israelites were led off to Babylon, God found a way that their king's like, sure, you can head back there. Oh, and Nehemiah, I'll foot the bill and give you all the lumber so you can rebuild the wall. Like, that sounds like a God thing in God's favor, right? But he also has Edom he, and the, the Edomites, the people of Esau, that he's saying, you know what? I knew that you guys were, from the very beginning of the world, you were going to reject me. He knew that Esau was going to marry Canaanite wives who were going to lead, them, lead him astray from worshiping the God of his father. He knew that the Edomites were going to be at war 
with Israel, that they weren't going to even allow them to go through their land while they were walking through the wilderness. He saw all this conflict. He knew that they set themselves up to be God's enemy. And so when God says, I hated them, it's by comparison. In contrast to the Israelites, God is showing them that He sees the result of their actions. And so by comparison, He stands against them. Esau despised his birthright. Like there's all these things that he's just is showing. He's not a worshiper of God. And so God stands against him as his enemy and to all those people. And so the point God is making with his answer here is that the Israelites are walking around thinking, woe is me. Our world isn't very good. And God is saying, hey, you need to look at your enemies around you. That's what it looks like when I don't give my love to a people. They've been trampled down and defeated. And even if they decide to build back, he says, I will tear it down all over again. These are harsh words. Like It's uncomfortable when we read these passages. But we also have to understand, this is what the truth of God's Word is saying rather clearly. Like They can build back. I'm tearing it back down. He's not on their side. And so that's one way that God is showing His love for His own people, by fighting against their enemies. He wants them to see how by comparison He has provided so much for the Israelites. But sometimes you can't see these things without comparing yourself to others. And now I understand, if we stop here, I don't leave you with very much that you can take home with you that's of any use, right? Knowing that God was the enemy of the Edomites, it's good to know but it doesn't really transform our lives today. Here's what does transform our lives today. When we look and we ask ourselves, God, how do you love us today? Right? Back when the book of Malachi was written, they said, how have you loved us? And God says, here's the proof. Well, today, God loves you. And what's his proof for that? His first proof is that we have salvation through Jesus. If you ever wonder... How does God love us today? How do I know that God loves me? It's all the passages through the entire New Testament that tell us that God offers us salvation as a gift through grace, by faith, not by works. We don't earn it. And that we're assured this salvation, that we can have confidence in this salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4-5 through says, Like the rest... We were by nature deserving of wrath. Sounds a little bit like the Edomites. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. We don't understand why God does it this way. But what we see is His lavish love is extended to us as salvation. What's another way God proves His love for us. If the greatest sign for our love is this eternal salvation, the ongoing sign for us is that He gives us His very own Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us and work in our lives in these incredible ways that completely change us from the inside out. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, right before Jesus ascends into heaven, He tells His disciples to wait for the promised Holy Spirit. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. There's some sort of spiritual power that we are given when the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, 
comes into our life that allows us to live differently, that allows us to be more courageous to share our faith, that leads us and guides us in how we should live our lives. We also know that we have this power for the spiritual battle. So in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4, it says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So in the spiritual battle, we have the power of the Holy Spirit on our side. That's an incredible gift. Shows us God's love that He's giving us tools to live in this broken world. We have the fruit of the Spirit as we continue how the Holy Spirit changes us, that ultimately we're filled with love, hope, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That just bubbles up inside of us because we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. It changes us from the inside out. That's a demonstration of God's love in our life that He's given us His very Spirit. Third, we have, divine, or we have direct access to God now. For those of us who were raised in Baptist churches, that may not sound overly special, but a lot of people weren't raised in a church where you could just go directly to God and pray to God and learn about God and have conversation and give Him your junk. You had to go to the priest. You had to confess to a priest. You weren't supposed to read the Bible yourself because the priest read the Bible and he told you what you were supposed to do. There's a lot of veins of Christianity even today where the priest stands between you and God. But that's not what our Bible tells us. It's, it's a carryover from the Old Testament. They didn't have direct access to God. They had the Levites that stood between God and man. The Levites offered the sacrifices. The Levites offered the prayers. When Jesus showed up, God's love tore the curtain in two so that we now can go straight to God. That's what's written about in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, that's a place no regular person could go before Jesus' death on the cross. By a new and living way open for us through the curtain. That's the curtain in the temple that was torn when Jesus died. That is His body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Folks, we can talk to the Creator and Sustainer of life. He knows us. He knows how many hairs are on our head. He knows when we have a bad attitude in the morning. He knows when we need to show more love to people. He knows when we're worn out and exhausted. And He wants us to come to Him to find rest, to find peace, to experience His grace and His love all over again so that we can share that love with others. That is an incredible gift of God. That's an incredible way that God demonstrates to us He loves us because we can have direct communication with Him. Final thing, and it's kind of a catch-all, is just promised blessings. There are so many blessings in the Bible for those who love and trust Jesus that aren't available to non-Christians. It's a demonstration of God's love 
He says that he will answer our prayers that are in alignment with his will. It says that he will bless our generosity, that he'll wipe away the tears of the brokenhearted, that he'll reward the upright, that he will faithfully bring all his children into his eternal home when we die. We have a million other blessings. It's God's way of saying, I love you so much. But it's really easy in the mess of life to stop seeing the signs of God's love for us. When everything stacks up and all we see is the hurt and the struggle and the pain and everything just feels hard and everything we want to get done feels like those plans are being frustrated, we can become a lot like the Israelites who felt abandoned by the God who claimed to love them. And just like them, we wonder, God, how have you loved me? During the time of Malachi, God answered this question by pointing to the ways He dealt with the Israelites versus how He dealt with their enemy. He brought Israel back to rebuild their city that had been destroyed, but in Edom, He promised to tear down anything that they tried to build back on their own strength. And now on this side of the cross, living in the new covenant that was established by the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us, we have even more proof and significantly better proof, praise God, of His love for us. We have salvation. We have the Spirit. We have direct access to our loving and heavenly Father. We have countless promises through the pages of Scripture. We have a God who in every way is trying to show us and wave us down and say, I love you. Stop looking at all the problems and look at me. So if you've been feeling abandoned or if your faith has felt weak, focus on these incredible promises of God. Recognize that you've all been given uh, these things, these incredible aspects or signs of His love as long as you've put your faith in Jesus. See how personal the Creator and Sustainer of life has made Himself to every single one of us. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray?